State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Hey, FitFam, welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Yangsma. In this week's episode, I bring on a very special guest, somebody near and dear to my heart, Jennifer Youngsma. Yes, my wife makes an appearance on the podcast. It took a little bit of convincing, but we finally got her here. And she is an early childhood educator who specializes in inquiry-based learning. And we take the time to maybe take a step away from the one-on-one training that we often do and often discuss on the podcast. And instead, we talk about child development and specifically the benefits of outdoor exploration and risky play when it comes to uh, the development of children, both in the motor development realm, as well as socially, mentally, and emotionally. And so there's a lot of really great information here, whether you work with children or you have children of your own, or perhaps you have family members or friends with young children, it just lends a great foundation for how to speak to them, what risk is, and how allowing certain amounts of risk is actually beneficial to development, as well as just helping them to really see how your modeling of an active, healthy lifestyle really rubs off on them later on down the road. I find that when you look at a lot of individuals coming into the gym or coming into the training center or the studio, oftentimes they're trying to really catch up to what they used to have or trying to regain what they used to have when they were young. And if we really work with young people to improve their motor development and maintain the skills that we get or we have when we are young, you'll see a much better result later on down the road. Much less pain, much less chronic disease, and uh, just better movement overall. We really hope that you enjoy this episode. If you haven't yet, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and comment on the podcast, and we'll see you on the other side. All right, welcome Jen to the State of the Industry podcast. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. It's uh, my pleasure. So, just before we get into what we're going to be talking about today, can you just give the audience a little bit of a background about who you are and what you do? Sure. So, I'm Jen. Um, I am a teacher. I teach in Ontario. And I have been teaching for the past 10 years uh, in early childhood education. So, most of my time has been spent teaching kindergarten. Um, and in the primary grades, I've taught K to five. 
but uh, most of my time has been spent in kindergarten, grade one, grade two. Nice. And so within that, what do you focus on when you're, you're teaching? Like what's your, what would you say your teaching style is? So I have found such um, a cool focus in play-based learning and inquiry-based learning. So what that is, is focusing on wonder, curiosity, hands-on experiences for kids to learn curriculum through more open-ended uh, activities and um, opportunities. So in kindergarten, the curriculum in Ontario is actually really wonderfully um, created around play-based learning. So uh, that was a really cool learning. As soon as I got into kindergarten and saw that, I was hooked. Um, so now I'm working on bringing that inquiry and play-based learning up into the higher primary grades, so into grade one and grade two, and trying to use a more curriculum-focused grade, but still using play and inquiry to teach because they're still kids, they're still young, and play is still so important for them. Yeah, so what's the what's the benefit of something like inquiry-based learning versus what you would typically see in a classroom? So when we grew up, I would say, you know, if you're in your 30s, 40s, or older, typical school for us was you sat in rows or you sat um, singly in a desk. The teacher stood at the front, and they were the knowledge holder. So they were the one that gave everyone the knowledge and we would just sit and listen and absorb that information. Um, so that was kind of a traditional model. Um, so an inquiry program actually doesn't see the teacher as the knowledge holder, but as a partner in education. So the students and the teacher are co-learners and work together towards getting knowledge. So yes, the teacher does have the curriculum in front of them and knows where they want to go, but they can use guiding questions, guiding activities to get the students to kind of discover the curriculum instead of just listening and absorbing that. So the value of an inquiry-based program is that students are taking ownership over their learning. They're much more engaged in learning because there's choice. Um, and it's something that can be done not just in the early years, but all the way up through, through the grades. It would just look different based on the age and the curriculum. Yeah. And where does... Um where does something like movement fall when you're thinking about inquiry-based learning in a classroom? I think that movement is so important. So especially teaching kindergarten, grade one, twos, they are very, very active. Um, so expecting them to, you know, sit at a desk and do their work is not going to happen. Um, I mean, there's times that it will, but allowing students the opportunity to move throughout the day um, is in so important because that's you know movement is what solidifies knowledge is what um, allows their bodies and their brains to work in tandem so if they're moving often their brains are actually absorbing information a lot more so in my classroom we use clipboards we use um, flexible seating so kids can move around the classroom and work wherever works best for them so um, movement breaks are something that's scheduled into everyone's day in York Region specifically. We have something called DPA, which is daily physical activity, which is interwoven throughout the day on top of um, the regular traditional phys physical education classes. Um, yeah, but having the opportunity for kids to be moving throughout the day, going outside, doing outdoor learning, um, I found is such a rich asset to a program. 
I know when, like, when you look developmentally at the process that the body goes through from birth up until, you know, the later, the, the later child years, you see that the movement is very, very limited in the first little bit. And as the body starts to develop, they still have not gotten to the point where they are really speaking you don't see language tied into that yet but the almost the instant that a child starts to walk you see the language skills start to go as well right and so you see that kind of tied in in development and then even like anecdotally if you have a very very important phone call that you need to either make or a very important conversation oftentimes you won't just sit at a desk while you have that conversation, you'll actually pace back and forth. You'll stand up, you'll walk around. You may go for a walk outside. Mm -hmm. um, I know for myself, when I present at conferences, I'm a mover, right? Like I move a lot when I teach. I can't just stand behind a podium and, and speak to somebody. I have to be moving. And I think when you think about the development of language, the development of learning, as soon as you get on your feet, yes, it opens doors for you to be able to move around and explore more of your environment, but that movement also ties directly in with the learning side. So I like that you said that, uh, or, or you linked those two together. Um, that's really cool. Mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to get into a little bit about um, children today. And uh, like I know from my experiences in the strength and conditioning realm and the rehabilitation realm, uh, like I see young, like young people, not, not kindergarten age. You know, I think the youngest that we typically train is maybe nine years old is maybe the youngest that I've seen when we're doing actually like structured activities, but definitely in kind of the, the early teen years, I've seen a lot of, um, motor control issues. I've seen a lot of poor posture and a lot of these things are lifestyle related. They're movement related or lack of movement related. Uh, we see a, a huge increase in the number of children with obesity. And I, I just want to kind of get your perspective on kind of what's going on. What have you seen? Because you, you've been teaching for about 10 years and you've seen kind of a wide range of, of children go through you know, so people who you maybe taught when they were in grade one or, you know, grade 11 now kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so you've seen them progress through. So what have you seen over the past 10 years in your teaching with regards to um, just what you've seen, like what you, what have you seen in children? Yeah. I mean, we see a lot of really wonderful things and we see a lot of other things that are posing uh, as problems for kids as they're working their way through school specifically. Um, we have a lot more students identified with something, so that being um, a diagnosis from a psychologist or from a family doctor, um, so attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity disorder, autism, um, behavioral issues, so looking at oppositional defiance disorder. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of children in a classroom, especially in public school, who are working off of a, an IEP, so an individual education plan. Um, so what that is, is it, it creates a program for students who find a traditional curriculum uh, just a little bit too overwhelming. So it comes up with strategies to make things more manageable for them. 
So almost every class, uh, I would say, uh, has multiple students on individual education plans. Um, there's a lot of children dealing with anxiety, um, and we can see that as early as kindergarten, junior kindergarten. Um, kids are suffering from social anxiety, from um, work anxiety. We're seeing, um, yeah, just a lot of uh, social um, challenges. Um, I guess that kind of falls into the, the autism piece as well. But um, a lot of, of social issues and challenges for kids um, with making and keeping friends. Um, but yeah, so just there's a lot of stuff where um, kids are struggling with motor development skills. So uh, fine motor, especially we find in the, the younger ages, fine motor skills. So those those small movements like writing and coloring, things like that. Um, gross motor skills. Uh, we're also seeing um, some gait um, issues. So kids are um, walking, having difficulty moving, walking. Um, yeah, and we kind of we see such a range of, of that in in, uh, in through the kids, but um, yeah, we've seen a lot of gross motor. So kids will be moving around a classroom and, and have difficulty navigating around desks and chairs, and often you know we'll bump into chairs or bump into um, desks that have been there all day, or run into trees outside. Like the tree's been there for months, you know, it hasn't moved. Um, but you know, we're just we're just seeing kind of some inconsistency with with that. Um, and I've found over the past, I mean, 10 years that I've been teaching, I've seen an increase in, in children who have some difficulties with that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember, um, a, a story you mentioned about just having a child trying to get them to kick a soccer ball and no matter how hard they tried their, their, their foot eye coordination just was not there. And like something the size of a soccer ball, right? Like it's not, you know, trying to catch a base, like a small baseball. Mm -hmm. It's, it's trying to kick something that's relatively large and just the difficulty in, in doing something like that. Yeah. And we've even had students who were, this is in kindergarten, sitting on a chair at a desk working. And then all of a sudden they were on the floor. So this just, this ability to stabilize their body, um, to say sitting on a chair or, you know, to move while sitting on a chair without falling off, um, is becoming, some kids have a major issue with that and, and that ability isn't there. Yeah. And I think that, that, so you mentioned spatial awareness of walking into or running into things, um, you know, kinesthetic awareness, so the awareness of where your body is in space when you're sitting on a chair, um, coordination, uh, motor control issues, uh, now I, I know we were we were talking kind of off air a little bit about some of the top reasons why that is happening specifically because this is for you know trainers or teachers uh, parents that we're we're really doing this episode for and you pointed out three that I really want to kind of dive into a little bit um, one was risky play so just a lack of risky play and so we'll get into what you know, play is when this definition of risky play came about, uh, but also um, just lack of outdoor activity and exploration and then screen time as well being a, a big issue and all kind of intertwining and, and, mm -hmm. and overlapping a little bit. So I just wanted to start before we get into actually speaking about risky play. Can you just talk about where did this idea of risky play come from? Right. Like when did this all start that that play is risky? Yeah, so 
it's interesting if you think about play 30 years ago to play now um it's still very similar right like play is play um but the term risky play um hasn't actually showed up in research previous to I think it's 2009, I believe, was when it was first introduced as a term um, into, you know, the academia world. Um, and that's because the play has started to shift and the idea of risk in play became something that was becoming super uncommon. And so researchers have found that they needed to distinguish between this distinguish this change in their in their research and so the term risky play was kind of coined um by a researcher in norway around you know 2009 is when we started to see research specifically into that idea of risky play yeah and so what is the like when you look at today's society what is what is the perception of risk in general and why did we end up having to get this term of risky play yeah so i think our society now is is very risk averse we want to avoid risk we see risk as negative and something that we should not be involved in and so especially i find parents um are very cautious in protecting and preventing any risk for their children and so as a society we are doing everything that we can to reduce and remove all risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then how does that differ? Because like when you look at a, when you look at a family, if you look at a, a family who has a young child and, and let's just call this child three years old, two years old, the parent is always the one trying to protect the child and is that because the child doesn't know what risk is or is that because there's a big difference between how the child sees risk and how the parent sees risk? Yeah, that's a, a big question. Um, so I think every, every human sees risk and evaluates risk in different ways and um, risk actually isn't always bad. So risk, you know, you can see risk in two ways. You can see risk as being, a good healthy thing that can have positive outcomes or risk as a negative thing. And so most of our society focuses on risk as being this negative thing that we need to eliminate. But children are actually given the skills to navigate risk themselves without adult intervention. And so if, you know, this child's age two or three is engaging outside, they're playing and the parent is constantly be careful. Don't do that. Don't go there. Don't do this. Don't go that. Don't do that. What the, what that message is telling the student, that child is that they don't make decisions on their own, that they need to rely on someone else to tell them what to do and what not to do. So what that is actually doing is it's removing uh, the child's ability to problem solve in situations, to be able to then navigate situations independently. So children actually have, you know, pretty good risk assessment internally. They typically know uh, what is good for them in risk and what that they want to avoid. And so a lot of times what a parent might or a teacher might see as being too risky for a child, the child might not actually think that it's that risky for them. And they might be able to push that boundary a little bit more and feel more comfortable with that. 
so children are, are quite good. And through my, you know, years of watching ch- children play and move around outside specifically, I've seen that kids are quite good at, you know, stopping themselves when they see what they're doing is a little bit too much and kind of pulling back. Um, so specifically in like climbing trees, you know, the kids will, you'll, you'll see a kid who's super confident, will run up to the top, climb all the way up. They're really high, you know, look at me, I'm so high. And they feel this, this pride in the fact that they've managed to get themselves up there and that they are in fact quite high and then they can climb back down and off they go. But you might have another child who's like, oh, I want to do that. And then they'll climb up. They get maybe halfway and then they're like, nah, I can't go that way. That's too much risk for me. And so then they'll come down. So what's really cool is you get to watch those kids navigate those situations themselves. And as an educator watching, I'm there to make sure that what they're doing isn't dangerous, but allowing them to kind of navigate those situations. Because if I had told that first child, don't go, that's too high. For them, it wasn't too high. For me, maybe it was as the adult, but for the kid, it wasn't. And look at the joy and the accomplishment that they felt from getting to the top. So allowing kids kind of the ability to navigate some of those situations, making sure that they're not in immediate danger, but making sure that they have the ability to navigate those situations themselves. Um, Because then you think, if they were out playing on their own, there wasn't an adult around. You don't want the kid waiting for an adult to tell them to do something or not. You want them to be able to navigate situations independently without adults around to make sure that they're making smart and safe choices when those adults aren't there guiding and, and monitoring. Yeah. Um, yeah, because ev- evaluating risk is part of everyday life for everybody. Right. Like whether you are a two to three year old, whether you're in kindergarten, whether you're in high school or whether you're an adult, mm-hmm. like it's every single second of every day, you're constantly evaluating risk. And I always like to say, like your body, like the human body is is really looking for one thing and that's survival right so survival through reproduction survival through uh, food survival through protecting itself Mm -hmm. uh, healing itself shutting itself down when it feels like it's injured and needs to repair itself when you've pushed it too far and and i think this is the same thing so i think this goes back to your 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 the concept that you mentioned about the innate ability of a child to evaluate risk on their own without really requiring a parent to do that for them, right? So they're able to sense the danger, know, and then ask for help if they're in that situation, mm-hmm. right? Because um, I think we we discussed, you know, the concept of of danger versus risk, and 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 most most people, most parents today are trying to make like basically play as safe as possible as opposed to what it should be, which is as safe as necessary. Right. Mm -hmm. So trying to avoid danger, like immediate danger. And uh, we use the example of, you know, a child running towards a street, right? Like a, 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 like the road that you live on and they're running towards the curb. Most parents would instantly say, stop, stop, stop. Don't run onto the road or you run and grab them. Right. Um, But as the parent being able to pull back for a second evaluate the situation like is there are there any cars coming on the road right so is there immediate danger and then if there's not how can you better maybe word that and i think we'll get into that a little bit later when we talk about how to reframe risk and how to how to do all of that but 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's so many situations that, um, parents need to navigate and that the line between risk and danger sometimes can be a very short little space. And, you know, if we're thinking about a playground or we're thinking outdoor, outdoor learning, you know, as a parent of younger children, your job would be to scan the space and make sure that there is nothing dangerous there. So discarded needles or whatever at a park or broken glass bottles, as your kids are running around barefoot, like those things are a hundred percent danger. And that's something as an adult, you know, that's something that you need to step in and, and manage. Um, things that might be risky are definitely like heights. Um, but say that there's a, a rose bush, um, or a, another bush that's got thorns on it, you know, that's something that's risky and it's not dangerous, it's risky. Um, and so, there's opportunity, you know, you could just leave it and your kid could find out hard way by falling into it. Or, you know, there's, there's teaching there, you know, oh, I noticed this, you know, this bush has some really sharp thorns on it. You don't have to say, don't go there, stay away from that. Be careful there. You know, just give them the knowledge of like, oh, that's something that's sharp. Kids are going to logically figure out that I don't want to be playing near something that could hurt me. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's where that innate sense of risk comes in. But as the adult, as an educator, as a parent, or as a, you know, just someone who's minding children that, you know, you, you want to give them the knowledge that they need to stay safe, but then allow them to make those decisions. So giving them the knowledge of, oh, I noticed that, you know, there's a, a pointy something there. There's, you know, there's pointy sticks on the ground over there. Just giving them the knowledge to see those things, but not telling them what to do with that. You're just giving them the information. Yeah. And I think that like this whole conversation, but risky play ties directly into what I want to talk about next, which is just the lack of uh, outdoor activity, the lack of exploration um, in today's society. And you mentioned it about like talking about play radius um, you know, looking for houses. You see this all the time in the yards that are there and you see just kind of what's, what's really important, I guess. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about just how this lack of activity and outdoor exploration could be affecting movement, motor learning, child development? Yeah, I think it's been a, you know, over the past 40 years, the opportunities for outdoor play have, have changed drastically not only in just what families are comfortable with, but what our society is actually creating opportunities for. Um, you know, the new houses that they're building these days just break my heart, right? None of them, so many of them don't have yards. They don't have backyards. They don't have opportunities for kids to, to play outside. And, the, you know, the green space is just a field with, you know, metal climbing equipment. Um, and it's just completely reducing the opportunity for kids to be independent and to be outside. Um, you mentioned the idea of play radius. And so um, research was done out in, um, in Europe about this family. They followed, they looked at different generations of the family and the great grandfather had a really large play radius. So what that means is from his house, he had say like six miles worth of space that he could go on his bike and bike out to places that he would go independently at, at a young age. Um, and, you know, and then the grandfather had a bit of a smaller radius. The parent had an even smaller. And then the child now, their radius is their house. Then a lot of times now kids can't even go out into their own backyards on their own mm -hmm. um, just out of fear of 
you know, getting um, neighbors judging them for, you know, not supervising their children while they're outside or fear of something might happen or fear of, you know, kidnapping. There's this idea that, you know, people take kids all the time. Um, so there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety in allowing children to be independent outside. Whereas I know like when we were children, like we could take our bikes and we could bike off. And, you know, as long as we were back by the time, you know, those, <laughs> those lights came out outside, um, we were fine. And our parents, we didn't have cell phones. They didn't know where we were. They mm -hmm. had a general idea. Um, but they had taught us strategies on how to navigate our neighborhood, how to make sure that we didn't get lost when we were out there. And outdoor play provides so many cool learning opportunities for kids and the idea of risky play and outdoor play are, are quite linked together I believe and um, kids development of motor skills and problem solving skills and even social skills when they're outside and independent are are drastic there's so many opportunities for learning um, Risky play can kind of be divided up into like six different types of play. So there's um, playing with speeds. So that could be like biking as fast as you can down the hill or running as fast as you can in a park. Um, so you have speeds. We have um, playing at a height. So that's like climbing trees, climbing, um, I guess, play equipment. Um, there is rough and tumble play. So allowing kids to, you know, play fight. Um we have another another one is playing with elements, so playing with fire or water. Not necessarily playing with fire, but you know, playing near to fire or playing near water, or playing um, you know by a pond or a creek. Like I know there was one by my house, and we used to play all the time down by the water. Um, so that's four. And then there is the playing with the fear of of, of getting lost, um, the opportunity of getting lost, and so that looks different for different ages for little kids, you know, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, that's just hiding, playing hide-and-go-seek. There's that fear of, you know, getting lost. Whereas older kids, it's navigating the, the neighborhood on their own and, and moving around. Um, and the other one, the last kind of area is, is playing with tools. So providing real tools for kids to play with. So if you're outside, you know, maybe they have a hammer and some nails and some wood and they're, you know, kids can be building and kids can be creating so all of those situations have inherent risk in them just by what they are. But the, the risk definitely, the danger outweighs the, the positives that can come from those opportunities. So kids are playing at heights. Kids who are, you know, playing at speeds are gaining incredible motor skills, um, you know, rolling down a hill, right? Like there's so much happening with your vestibular um, systems that, you know, are rolling around. It's allowing your body to, to build strength, to build um, all of those connections and things in your body and your brain as you're moving in different ways. So outdoor play is so wonderful because kids move in so many different ways. They're mm -hmm. crawling, they're climbing, they're jumping, they're running, um, they're spinning, they're rolling. Whereas if you're looking at indoor play, yes, you can do some of those movements, but they're much more limited in that there's, if you're rolling in your house, you're rolling in a flat surface, you're rolling in one direction. So outdoors, you're rolling down a hill, you're maybe trying to roll up a hill, you're learning what those types of movements can do in your body. You're learning what you're capable of. They're learning um, cause and effect. There's just so much learning about the world around them, about what they're capable of. Um, and the outdoors provides this really 
genuine opportunity for all of this exploration. And then to not even just the, the actual general calming sense that outdoors and nature have um, on a child's uh, mental health as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I know I was, uh, we had a, a fella named uh, Perry Nicholson on the podcast not too long ago, and he was talking all about lymphatics. And one of the things that we discussed, uh, I'm not sure whether it was in the podcast or, or, or it might have been uh, just off air a little bit, but we talked about kind of the microbiome within your own body and the benefits of playing in dirt, playing in sand, playing in trees and leaves and and not having this incessant need to wash your hands all the time. But like when you bring in the bacteria and that from those and not eating it, but but just like even smelling your hands after they've been in dirt or something like that actually brings in and helps um, improve the internal microbiome. So your body's ability to, you know, break down different nutrients and absorb nutrients. And, and it just, it's a really good healthy way. And so specifically during development mm-hmm. uh, can be very, very beneficial for them. Um, I know like I was, uh, I was lucky enough to grow up with a forest behind my house. Um, so we didn't have neighbors behind us. And so when you're going through that list of, of those six those six things, I was saying to myself, I'm like, man, like we would go out back, we would climb trees to build tree forts with tools. And so we're doing so many different things in that risky play just by doing one thing. Mm-hmm. So like it's a combination of all of those. I played sports, so I was always running fast, skating fast, biking fast. Uh, but it's interesting, like thinking back to the your children no limits i remember this one time my older brother and one of his friends were rollerblading down the hill at our house and um the the hill at our house when we were growing up was super steep and it basically came to a dead end where there was another street going straight across that did not have a stop sign so you basically you had to stop um or you're going to get hit by a car and i remember this one time they were going down and they were going really fast and i was going down as well and at the bottom, there's kind of like this open green space um, on the one side. And so they were older than me. And so they basically just with the rollerblades hopped off and kind of like ran on the grass as they slowed themselves down. I ended up skidding to a stop on my stomach because I didn't have that ability. But I'm like, I'm going too fast. I'm going too fast. So I sensed the danger. I knew that I had to do it, but I couldn't do what they did. So I ended up getting hurt. But there was no lasting you know, mm-hmm. effect from that. Right. So I like. And I think this is one thing that that parents often uh, maybe don't do all that well is looking back at what they've learned and how they've learned it. And then they are like, well, I don't want them to learn it that hard way. I want them to learn it a different way. Right. And for some things that may be beneficial, but for a lot of these things with regards to playing at heights, like, like I've fallen out of trees and broken my arm before. Not, I'm not going to stop my child from climbing trees. I still climb trees. Right. I'm one of those weird guys that you'd see in a park climbing a tree. Right. <laughs> um, He's telling the truth. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, you know, I was cutting down some some uh, dead branches out of uh, a tree at my parents place. And they're like, oh, this doesn't quite reach. So I'm like, well, boost me up. I'll climb up this tree. So I climbed into the tree and, you know, I'm probably a story up, two stories up in the tree and I'm, you know, cutting down twigs. So um you can you can still do, but the same thing. Like my parents are still like, well, that's, that's, oh, are you sure, Adam? Are you okay? Like it, they're still you know, my my parents, 
me being in my mid thirties, my parents are still checking in on me to make sure that I know what's too high or like if I'm comfortable. And I think that that's something that as a parent, you'll always do. And you'll always, you always want to make sure that your children are safe and that they're not going to get hurt. Right. That's what a parent's job is, is to protect their child. And so there's ways to do it in a, in a way that keeps you as the parent, I think, calm and like cool and collected, but also gives children the space to make some of those mistakes. And, you know, your story about going down that hill, like I I bet you probably didn't do that again until you were more confident in your skating skills that you could actually stop yourself Mm -hmm. from bailing onto your stomach and hurting yourself, right? Like it takes one little thing for a kid to learn. And sometimes it's a scraped knee and sometimes it's maybe a broken bone. Um, but if you if you look at the research in in this area, most of, if not all of the research talks about injury and injury prevention and that actually unstructured child directed play, which is spontaneous and authentic, there's less injury than a more directed adult directed activity. Mm-hmm. Um, so looking at maybe a sport or something like that. Um, but children tend to do a great job when their play is independent and undirected by adults to keep themselves safe. Um, and the research speaks to that, um, and, and kind of verifies that that's not just, you know, something that we're as a promoting risky play. I'm not just saying that the research actually, you know, backs that up as well. Yeah. Uh, so I want to just touch on the last, the last piece here. So we've talked about risky play. We've talked about a lack of outdoor activity and exploration, and I wanted just to talk quickly about screen time because I know this is one of the things that when we were growing up, there weren't really many screens. This is just, you know, um, I don't want to date myself too much, but this is kind of when uh, video games were first coming out. You know, I had a Sega, like um, the first Sega, like the first year Sega ever came out. And so I've seen kind of the progress through and I know that. Um, I didn't have an Atari or anything like that because I was a bit older than or a bit younger than that. But it's just this idea that screens are everywhere now. And, you know, we see technology as being this advancement, this this beneficial thing. And, and I know you'll touch on this. that There are benefits to having technology. There is a time and a place to use technology. But uh, what is going on in most families that you have seen? I, I'm going to talk about college a little bit later, but um, what have you seen w- with regards to young children and how they're using their screen time? Yeah, um, everyone's using it. I think that that's safe to assume. And it's something that is still, I think, being kind of figured out because it's still, it is, like you say, it's relatively new. Um you know, kids are getting devices younger and younger and younger. And it's a lot of the time I'm having a lot of conversations with parents as an educator about screen time and about, um, you know, beha- the, the link between that and some of the behaviors we might be seeing in classrooms. So um, some of the children who have a more difficult time adjusting to classroom um, expectations or just, um, uh, yeah, just the expectations in the a classroom setting some of those kids, you know, you have conversations and, and they're spending five to six hours on a screen at home. And, you know, I understand a lot of the time why that needs to happen. You know, parents are busy. They've had long days at work. They need to make dinner and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, it, and it's the quickest and easiest way to 
focus a child. Um, you know, it's always, I always find it so amazing, you know, you put on something in the classroom and they're, you know, everyone's instantly like mesmerized. I mean, you can see it in infants, right? Like, um, one of my friends were, we were watching something and her infant woke up, we brought him into the room and, you know, he was laying away from the, the screen, but it was just doing, you know, he's like two months, three months old and doing whatever he can to get his head to turn towards the screen. So it's something that, from instant, from birth, kids are drawn towards screens. I know as adults, we're the same. We're constantly checking our phones. We're constantly, you know, watching Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. But, and I, so I think that there's definitely a time and a place and there's a lot of really wonderful educational shows and apps and programs available for kids. Um, but I think the biggest kind of learning would be just to learn how to, to limit it and to use it in, um, in minimal ways, but also in smart ways. Um, so just having five to six hours of open screen time on an iPad in an evening is probably not a healthy, um, use of screen time. And so just being a little more intentional with screen time, I think can allow children, um, to actually develop better and to develop in a way that, um, is a little bit more uh, well-rounded, I guess, in that they are sitting in their home. They're not constantly on a screen and using that as a way to entertain them, but they're maybe sitting and are feeling a little bit bored and have to come up with, you know, creativity and come up with an idea to keep themselves entertained. And I think, I know with conversations with parents and, um, my own experience, you always kind of feel like as the adult, like we need to be keeping these kids busy. We need to keep, make sure that they are, are doing things and are engaged and are, are focused on whatever task it might be. But there's something to be said about boredom. And, um, there's a lot of really cool things that can come out of boredom. Like I look back on my childhood and I, I have a brother and a lot of the times the two of us would just you know, their adults are over and we had to keep ourselves entertained and our parents never set up structured activities for us to do. It was always just, you know, you have your toys, you have your things, you know, figure it out. And so we created so many cool games and activities and things because we were able to kind of sit with that boredom and figure out what it was we wanted to do to be entertained. Um, and so free play away from a screen, um, builds creativity, builds problem solving skills, um, and then when you throw that play outside, then you're, you know, it's even better. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely a time and a place for screen time for sure. I think it's just being intentional with it. What are you using it for? What's the purpose for why we're using it? And um, being intentional on timing with that. Um, I know there's so many, you know, researchers out there and um, just talking about, you know, the, the tech basket, right? Like, you know, we have our time with our tech, but then everyone, parents included, tech goes into a basket and this is our non-tech time. This is family time without technology. Um, and so being intentional about modeling what that looks like, limiting screen time, modeling, you know, family time without technology, and then modeling healthy use of screen time because it, it is something that I think everyone needs to learn. It's something that I'm still learning myself and um, especially with COVID and the you know, the shutdown and the school online, like that changed everything. Mm -hmm. And so I think everyone's still kind of navigating and learning what that, what that looks like. Yeah. Yeah. I think like I look back just like you did to my childhood and it was, um, my dad worked, um, 
you know, worked quite a bit, uh, longer hours. My mom at that time when I was younger was stay at home mom. And, um, so she was constantly busy when we came home from school or anything like that. She was cooking, she was cleaning, she was doing something. And so you couldn't bother her. You couldn't bother my dad cause he probably wasn't home yet at that point. And so we would probably play outside. So we'd be running around either in our backyard or out front of our house, down the street, um, my parents, all they had to do was stick their head out the door, yell, you know, you know, all our kids' names and, and, and then we'd all come running. But yeah, it's basically like you go and figure out something to do. I don't care what you do, just go and figure out something to do. Mm-hmm. And as I got a little bit older, every now and then that was me getting into a bit of trouble. Um, but yeah, I just think like for us, we had to find other ways to get around it. And, um, I, I think it's harder now to be a parent with regards to the availability of technology, mm-hmm. but also uh, the social pressure that kids have to have technology as well of their own. So to have a cell phone, like I didn't get my first cell phone until I was in first year university. Mm-hmm. And now there's a wait till grade eight, right? Like don't give a kid a cell phone until grade eight. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, grade eight? We didn't even, like, cell phones barely existed in grade, no, right? But, like. Yeah, um, kids have them now as, you know, early as grade three, even if not earlier. Yeah, and I think that that can be, and you you mentioned at the very beginning about uh, social anxiety or social difficulties, not being able to pick up on social cues and emotions and those types of things. And I think when you have that, and this isn't to tell anybody do or do not give your child a cell phone, but um, there's a responsibility that comes with a cell phone and there's, there needs to be an understanding with that. And I think that's a totally different podcast than yeah. this one. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think that's a big, a big piece to it is, is understanding that there's a time and a place for technology and it shouldn't just be, I need my kid to leave me alone. So I'm going to put something on to distract them. Um, you know, I think I, I like, I had somebody tell me, it's like, you know, I was, uh, you know, when I was before children, I was really, really against just, you know, putting on a movie or putting on a show or something for my kid. Like I didn't want to do that. Didn't want to do that. I was very adamant against it. And then I had a kid and I realized like, I have to do this because I need that time. Um, but it just kind of goes back like, well, what did your parents do when they wanted you to leave them alone? Mm -hmm. Right. They couldn't like a lot of parents today, couldn't just be sent to go and you know play on an ipad or to do something because they didn't exist Mm -hmm. right and so looking back like what did we do to get through this and how can i maybe instill that in my child as well so you mentioned boredom you mentioned open-ended play like we had uh, most of our toys were all building toys so we had micros uh or at least um enabled imagination right so we had micros we had duplo we had lego Lego, we had um you know my sister had barbies and all those types of things um but you could basically make town cities they were different every time you drove around you made up your own scenarios Um, i know we've got we've got blocks and um, we've given blocks to other families um, who have children just as a way to like you know teach your kid how to just develop make things on their own right yeah and i think there's there's so much to be said about open-ended materials and open-ended play and i mean that can be done indoors that can be done outdoors um the outdoors naturally lends itself to um 
open-ended play and creativity and imagination. And I think if you're to look at the materials and things that kids use when they're playing outside, they're using rocks, you're using sticks, um, you're using um, pine cones and pretty much anything you can kind of get your hands on that moves. And you create, it's different every day, what you're creating, what you're playing. And um, that's the, the beauty of it, right? Is that it's just open and it can be whatever you want it to be. And the outdoors is just such a beautiful opportunity for that. And so I know a lot of educators, um, the school I work at and, and follow on Instagram and have kind of created a community with, you know, our push is to bring the outdoors in. And so we bring in loose parts from outdoors and bring them into our classroom so that kids can be building and creating with uh, materials inside and outside and there's that cross between the indoors and the outdoors and there's something to be said about bringing the outdoors in 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 the form of loose parts or open-ended materials right so you spoke to blocks being a really great way for kids to explore and create and build and yeah there's just so much um freedom in having materials that aren't designed for one specific um, thing mm-hmm. for play, right? Like you look at a little plastic, little tykes, you know, um, those we, I mean, when I say this, we had it, um, the tool set, right? Usually a yeah. little plastic hammer and your little screwdriver. And, um, you know, if you have those in a classroom, chances are the kids are going to do the exact same thing with them every single day. You know, they're going to hammer, they're going to pretend to screw things. And then that's it. That's the, what the play will be. Whereas if you bring in blocks or sticks or um, maybe some logs, um, one day those might be a hammer, one day they might be a screwdriver, but then the next day it might be a magic wand or the next day it's, you know, uh, a cane to go for a, a hike over a mountain, right? So there's just so much freedom in allowing children to create what they want for when they need it. Mm-hmm. And having spaces in classrooms, having spaces in home, having spaces outside that provide materials to allow children to extend their play and to turn it into this imaginative, beautiful little micro world that they get to kind of create and change as they go. And then if they're playing with others, then you're adding in that whole social component of navigating with other people and you know I want this play to continue and I want to keep doing this um you know this pirate game or whatever we're playing you know if we're playing rough and tumble and they're you know playing pirates or whatever then you know kids have to navigate those conflicts that arise that say you know if I you know, if I, you hurt me and I'm mad at you, if I act out in anger, then this play gets shut down because you're not going to want to play with me anymore. And if I, you know, keep going, I talk to you about it, but then we can keep going and we're still going to play, then our play will continue and I get to keep playing the way I want to. So there's, there's learning how to navigate some of those social situations in play, in outdoors, with all of these open-ended materials that you wouldn't necessarily get if everyone is fighting over that one little hammer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is a good segue into what we will talk about in part two. So let's actually just stop part one there and uh, we'll come back and we'll chat about that. State of the Industry Podcast. I'll be back.